Good morning, Truett. It's so good to be in this space with you. And thank you so much for those words, those songs this morning. Um, if you've had class with me at all, you know that All Creatures of Our God and King is my favorite hymn. So we did not, we did not talk about that beforehand. In fact, my favorite memory of singing that song was out at the farm, the World Hunger Relief Farm, where I teach my classes. And I was out there one night, and the sun was setting, and it was so beautiful. I just felt compelled to sing it on the gravel road. And there I was, with the sun setting, singing all creatures of our God and King. And pretty soon, Fred the goat came up and sat on this side of me. and. A few minutes later, Haley the cow came, and we just took it in together. And so I thought of them as, as we were singing. So thank you so much for, for that. So our scripture reading this morning, um, it comes from Exodus, Exodus 3. And I'm just going to uh, begin by by reading it, um, probably be a good thing to do if we're going to dig into the text. So it's Exodus 3, chapter or verses 1 through 15. Um, hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, 
you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Then you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The bush that burns with fire and is not consumed. This is perhaps in all of scripture the most arresting image of God's holiness palpable on earth. With this image, we enter the scene in which God reveals to Moses that God has heard the cry of his people, and God is going to do something about it. Through this interaction, we come to know more about the character of the God of Abraham and Isaac, of Sarah and Rebekah. We also come to better understand the kinds of people God calls. Moses is no superhero here. That career trajectory was cut short when he murdered a man in rage with his own bare hands. Now Moses is simply a shepherd, tending to sheep that aren't even his, in an extremely barren landscape. Scripture, in an almost comical way, tells us, hey, you know the wilderness? Yeah, well, this story, Moses is west of that. Unbeknownst to him, he has made his way to a holy place, wild, desolate, and dangerous. The base of the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. This is where he finds the bush. So there's a general agreement that this bush is in what is today called the Sinai Desert, located in the Sinai Peninsula of what is modern-day Egypt. And I had the opportunity to go there when I was in seminary. And the first thing I can tell you about the Sinai Desert is that it is hot. It is very hot. The colors shift as you make your way through the desert. First it's red, and then once your eyes are saturated with that searing heat, the colors begin to fade. And eventually, by the time you make your way to this mountain, it's as if everything around you is the color of ash. So Moses is not just in the wilderness. He's west of the wilderness. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a blazing fire. And as scripture says, as I just read, he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside. I need to see what this marvelous sight is and why the bush has not burned up. After calling his name, God says to Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing, it's holy ground. 
Have you ever noticed how many times the ground shows up in our scriptures? We might want to pay attention to that. Adam was made of the Adama. Humans come from hummus. It was the blood-soaked ground that called out to God to bear witness to the murder of, of Abel. I always get them mixed up. Is that right? Okay, thanks. And here we have Moses standing before the burning bush, and the first thing that God tells him to do is take his shoes off. Have you ever wondered why God told him to take his shoes off? I mean, because it was holy, wouldn't it have been better for God to tell Moses to put his shoes on, to buffer himself from the holiness that is not his, this murderer shepherd? Instead, God tells him, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground, as if to say, Moses, you who are hummus, made of this earth, connect to this earth that is holy whole. Be humble. Take off your shoes. Don't buffer yourself from this connection. This is the place. This is the ground where God comes down to us, all the way down to the ground. Why? He says, I've come to deliver my people from the hand of Egypt and bring them up from this land. Pay attention to those directions. God comes down to us. This is the essence of the gospel already here in the burning bush. God has come down to holy ground to deliver his people and bring them to a land of promise. I suppose it's inevitable that the early Greek fathers with their rich imaginations would see the link between the burning bush and the incarnation of Christ. Gregory of Nyssa saw it first in the fourth century in his treatise on the birth of Christ. And later, the icon iconographic tradition would pick up this theme. One of the most famous icons of the burning bush is located today at the, mount, at the base of the mountain of Horeb, or Mount Sinai, at St. Catherine's Monastery. We have a picture of the monastery in the Dean Suite, um, just across from Jen's desk. St. Catherine's is a monastery that has housed monks in prayer since the third century. Even Mohammed made a covenant saying, leave those monks alone. This is a holy place. So in this third century monastery, there hangs a fifth century icon of the burning bush. And here, this icon in the bush, we find Mary, the mother of God. She is the burning bush. That's right. The early church saw the bush and thought of Mary. Mary, who, conce who conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet remained a virgin. Mary, who, gave in her, uh, who grew God in her womb and later at her breast, and yet did not dissolve into ash. She is herself the bush that burns perpetually and is yet not consumed. This image of Mary, ancient and yet perhaps 
unfamiliar to many of us, and maybe some of us Protestants a little uncomfortable, may serve to refresh our reading of the story of Moses, which may, for some of us, have become too familiar, and we need to hear it again with a fresh perspective. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis reflects that Moses and Mary share this in common. She writes, in the history of the world, they are the two people who have known God most intimately, known God in ways that mortal flesh could not tolerate without burning to a cinder. The Israelites understood that trespassing on holy ground would bring instant death. The high priest took his life in his hands when he entered the Holy of Holies one day a year, and even he entered the holy place enveloped in smoke, for who could see God and live? Moses and Mary are the ones who made most room in their lives and therefore in our world for God's dramatically new work of deliverance. Knowingly and willingly, they welcomed God into their lives, disrupting their own plans and purposes. We talk about the consuming fire of God's love, especially in youth group, around fires. But really, what we see here in this passage is something other than that. God unleashed, and yet, God does not consume. What does this teach us about the God who reveals himself here? What is the character of this God? If God would burn in this, this fire, this bush, and not destroy it, how gently does he relate to creation? How gently does he relate to us? It should teach us to pay attention to the way of God in the world. But here's my question for us this morning. Is this our way? Are we people of God? Do we turn aside? Do we listen to our mothers? Or do we domesticate God, collapsing him into three-point sermons? I am reminded of Bonhoeffer's reflection. I've always got to have Bonhoeffer in my sermons. As he watched his Christian brothers and sisters adapt to Nazi ideology, perhaps he reflected, instead of finding ourselves in the scriptures, the time has come for us to read the scriptures against ourselves. Mary, how many times has she been domesticated? I think of the Magnificat in Luke 1. I wonder how many people would hear her words differently if they were attributed to someone whose name was Paul or Peter. But because they're spoken by a woman, they somehow become meek and mild. Listen to her, a flame in the spirit of God, once she knows that God is growing inside of her womb, she says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his servant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. 
He has done mighty deeds with his arm. God has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy according to the promise God made to our ancestors. Those were not my third, first thoughts when I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> Bonhoeffer again recognized the subversive nature of Mary's song. He spoke these words in a sermon in 1933. He said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. The government of Guatemala in the 1980s also recognized the subversive nature of Mary's song. The government found Mary's proclamation that God is especially concerned for the poor to be so dangerous and revolutionary that it banned any public recitation of Mary's words. When women step outside of the framework of patriarchal systems, they tend to run into trouble. Domesticating female voices tends to be a thing in the church. Consider the recent video clip. I'm sure many of you saw of a pastor named Greg, who during a sermon smashed the Barbie dream house to pieces with a Bible-wrapped baseball bat, claiming that female leadership is, quote, demonic. I suspect there were powers and principalities on that stage that day, but I doubt they were in the pink house. Or the events of this past summer, when a certain male pastor collected the names of every church that he believed to be affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention who listed female ministers on their staff and published the list with pictures and addresses calling for the churches to be denounced and disfellowshipped for their unfaithfulness. Churches, including my own, and maybe yours, with pictures of our sisters, our alumni, with addresses. There's something horribly common about these actions. It's all so tiresome and muted church, like Moses, why don't we turn aside? Turn aside and ask, what is this? Not that, this. What is this fire that burns without consuming? What is this love, this love that is fire, descending upon the bush, descending upon Mary, Descending upon the people of God in the book of Acts, when spectators saw and said, what is that? Turn aside, for behold, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah 
and Rebecca and Rachel and Mary and Miriam and Hannah and Deborah and Junia will not be found in the Barbie-busted mega-platforms of this age. Turn aside off the concrete pathways of success and turn toward the wilderness, the pathway that at times requires risk and courage. The irony is, of course, that Moses thought he was going out into desolation. Remember, he's west of it. But it was in that place that love, love was encountered. This is not a story of Moses' leadership skills. Don't write that book. Don't convert him to a patriarchal patriarch. He's turning aside. He takes off his shoes. He hides his face. And ultimately, he responds in faithfulness. Literally, from head to toe, Moses is transformed by a divine encounter. And that tends to be the way with joy. Our sister and friend Angela Gorell, in her book on joy, writes, Joy has a wondrous way of seizing our attention. It often comes swiftly and powerfully. Joy can be a gift of the breaking in of goodness, beauty, and truth amid brokenness. She continues, joy is infectious. Joy has a too-muchness about it. Life often leaves us with the feeling of scarcity, but when we look for, recognize, embrace, and give ourselves over to joy, when we feel it deep in our bones, deep in our hearts, it is often so big that it feels like we cannot help but allow joy to seep out of our bodies and be shared with others. So let us turn aside and be humble and be brave. Let us turn to the God whose mothering ways compel us in joy to feed the hungry. Let us walk the way of Moses and nourish and sustain the oppressed and open our tables and our hearts to the roomy love of God. Thanks be to God.